Thank you very much to Mark Levine for uh, joining me here for a little chat on metal and decoloniality and these things. Uh, Mark here is a uh, professor of Middle Eastern African uh, histories and cultures at the University of uh, Southern California, or perhaps I should say Dr. Levine. <laughs> um, no, 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 that's fine. The University <laughs> of California, not USC. That's a rival school. We oh. don't like each other. Okay, cool. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. And also just being right up front here, you can uh, find uh, some of uh, Mark's work on uh, Kakuma uh, Sound, which uh, I'm going to link to somewhere in this. So right. thank you very much. And can you just like describe a little bit like uh, who you are and what your work is before we sort of start diving into the metal Gosh. and all these things. Yeah, well, um, who I am, I'm still trying to figure out. Uh, it's been a long journey and a confusing one, but at the moment, I'm a professor of history uh, and and cultural, cultural and intellectual and economic histories of Africa and the Middle East, especially focusing on the colonial era through the present day. So really the last five centuries, the modern era. And um, I've also been a professional musician long before I was an academic. So kind of two have gone hand in hand for 30 something years. And at some point I figured out, I, you know, rather than doing the professorial stuff during the day and music at night, I could just do the research on the music and and then do the research on me doing the music. So more recently, I've combined the two so I can just never sleep and just do <laughs> research, music, writing, teaching 24 hours a day. Um, but, you know, mostly trying to the last 10, 15 years, really trying to look at globalization, the cultural impact of globalization and its dynamics, and particularly the role of music and art in forming communities of resistance against oppressive regimes of all kinds, whether it's their own governments, colonial governments, occupying governments, uh, global economic governance like the IMF and World Bank. And um, yeah, how, you know, how music in the words of the great um, African or Afro-funk pioneer Fela Kuti, how music is a, a weapon, a weapon of the future, he called it. But he said that, you know, almost 45 years ago. So now is the future. So how does music function? as a as a weapon in struggles for freedom globally yeah yeah sounds sounds uh super super interesting i remember have, having a little bit of the same feeling uh i used to study uh capoeira uh brazilian oh, right. yes we um, talked about that right. uh, and and doing capoeira and studying at the same time yeah. it, it was a great combination <laughs> it's a so, great combination absolutely uh, cool. i mean if you can study what you love to do then you're a lucky person yeah and you are you are immersed you you yeah. you're, you're very immersed and uh yeah yeah um i remember uh that you uh, uh i listened to your interview with tyson Junkerport on his mm -hmm. his podcast cast mm -hmm. and you mentioned that you were working with uh sabatista thinking mm -hmm. uh and th that's something that i've become a little bit interested in mm -hmm. like uh the the whole uh, theory that comes out of the Zapatista um, movement. Uh, can you just, <laughs> out of my interest, how, how exactly are wow, you yeah. applying that or what what well, voices are you interested you know, uh, inspired by? I've been studying the Zapatista movements for 
well, since the 90s, you know, the Zapatista movement, uh, well, really it begins in the 70s. It begins when some, uh, you know, Marxist, socialist, but really Marxist uh, revolutionary uh, students in Mexico, uh, sort of the future of the Latin American left coming very much out of that tradition, um, uh, decide, you know, realize that a a standard kind of Marxist left-wing Latin American analysis, however powerful it might be, really is never going to be able to address the systemic nature of capitalism in a country like Mexico. And they had an intuition that the reason for that is because the, the generative order of capitalism in, especially in the Americas, is colonialism. And, and therefore, to address it, to understand it, never mind resist it and overcome it, you, you can't do that from the position of a European or European-founded kind of set of questions and epistemologies and even political philosophies or political ideologies or strategies like Marxism or, or you know, Latin American Marxism or communism or socialism. So literally people like Subcomandante Marcos, the person who became Subcomandante Marcos, which is not his real name, um, went into the jungles for over a decade with indigenous the indigenous Mayan populations in the poorest part of Mexico in Chiapas, and uh, which is a place where all the Mayan ruins are. And many people, it's part of the Yucatan Peninsula too, but it's just an incredible region. And they came out a decade later, having learned from and taught and and really developed what I term with my colleague, Professor Lucia Sorbera of Sydney University, a kind of collaborative ontology. They literally created a new experience of being human that was forged out of the liberatory impulse and epistemological grounding of Marxism and Marxism in its kind of Latin American intellectual variety, as opposed to kind of Stalinism or Maoism or Trotskyism. Um, and you know, deep, deep indigenous experiences uh, of uh, that have been situated in Mexico for thousands and thousands of years. So that leads to a kind of liberation movement, which was unlike any we've seen. And the liberation movement launches on um, January 1st, 1994, the day that the NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, comes into force. They launch a very short and quick rebellion, which uh, kills a few people, but very few. And then they put down their arms and said, now that we've got your attention, let's talk and let's let's try to understand. And the basic goal, you know, there's so many wonderful slogans that the Zapatistas come up with because Marcos and others were such great writers. But essentially, the most important one is to create a world where other worlds are possible mm. and it's to make to make possible the ability of everyone to have a future that is sustainable and where they can be their own true selves and live through their traditions, which is one reason why the Zapatista movement, unlike many liberation movements, indigenous liberation movements, was not trying to carve out a separate state. They felt the whole idea of a state and the whole idea of an independent na nation state identity was just meaningless in, in the era we, we were entering, which they certainly in many ways were right about. And that, you know, what they really want is autonomy. They just want to be left alone. They want to be able to create their world and they want to encourage others to create their worlds. So they, it was an incredibly powerful movement. It got an incredible amount of global support almost immediately in good measure, let's say in contrast to Hamas right now, another liberation movement, which has taken a very different tack um, uh, and, you know, focused on violence, intense violence. They, 
they did a different way. And so they became very popular. And that popularity protected them in many ways once they put down their arms because the whole world has been watching since that time. <laughs> so really, they were the avant-garde of what became the alter globalization movement, you know, the movement from below to create a yeah. very different kind of globalization than neoliberal globalization. And they were, and, you know, I really started studying them deeply in, in the late 90s and into the early 2000s and then traveled there several times and, you know, worked especially with artists and, and cultural producers in Chiapas and in the various autonomous municipalities. And really, you know, that was the beginning of my journey into really experiencing the power and importance of indigenous ways of knowing and being as what I call, you know, the grounding of a real 21st century <laughs> critical theory. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, is it, am, am I correct that the Sabbatistas are uh, that that one of the characteristic positions or, or points that they make is about knowledge that they talk about epistemicide and and basically absolutely. so it, it it that that whole sort of indigenous knowledge sort of thing that today is like we're hearing it from UN podiums and and you know their right. institutes all well, over the world. Well, you weren't really hearing it 20, 30 years ago when they started talking about it. It was still mm. very marginalized. Yeah, and yeah. remember that you know colonialism, especially settler colonialism in mm. in first contact societies and even in non first contact societies, contact like Algeria or Indonesia, which were settled by the French and the Dutch, but especially in first contact societies in the Americas, in Australasia, in Southern Africa. Maybe it wasn't first contact, but it was were very brutal. Mm. They were inherently genocidal. Yeah. And as part of the genocides and ethnic cleansings and domination, they erased people's cultural knowledge that had gone back for tens of thousands of years. Because if you take away that knowledge, the people can't survive. It it, it automatically is genocidal because once you erase everyone's knowledge of how they could live on a territory that they lived on for eons, they can no longer live. So mm. what um they can live as individual humans, but they can't live as a community. Mm. So what the Zapatistas were focusing on is recovering the indigenous knowledge that had been, if not lost, buried underneath five centuries of colonialism. Mm. And so for them, it's very important to build, uh, you know, a, a Mayan worldviews into health, into education, into politics, into into art and music, and use them as the basis, which is also why they don't ever preach, you know, unlike a Marxist, you know, a Marxist or, or an Islamist or, or a Zionist or an Americanist, you always think you have you've discovered the answer, your way is best, and mm -hmm. you want everyone else to either learn it or accept your the mm -hmm. genius and superiority of your way yeah. of thinking or doing things. But the Zapatistas would say, no, no, we have our way because that's the way that developed where we are. If you want to come, you shouldn't try to copy us. You should do your way, you know, figure out how to find your truth and your past and recover that. So it's a very unconfrontational and un unhegemonizing kind of philosophy because, again, it's based on, you know, an, a world where other worlds are possible. And once you awesome. have that attitude, yeah. you have, you know, in, you know, the inherent possibility for collaborations across cultures that are extremely powerful. Mm. I've, I've been really meaning to to get a little bit more into it and uh, and uh, like if you if you can give a couple of recommendations perhaps we can perhaps we can put them yeah a sure. video here so people spend, can, yeah, yeah. can can perhaps start thinking with I mean, I mean any But, any of the writings of subcomandante marcos you know mm. 
uh, most of which are available for free. If you go to their various websites, you can download most of them uh, for free. So that would be a good start. And yeah, uh, totally. And there's all kinds yeah. of, you know, depends what language. Yeah. Most of them are in Spanish and, and okay. a lot in English now too. Okay. Of um, but then comes the next question, because you, you have been working on metal music mm. and I'm just going to kind of come out and admit that I'm, I I don't know anything about metal myself uh but uh but I, I find it very interesting sort of from the outside mm. I feel a little bit like in the same way that I feel about football actually mm -hmm. I am not part of it myself but I find it extremely interesting mm. um like uh, what, uh how does Scandinavian these... who doesn't like football or metal that so you're are you really <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but how does these thoughts, how, for instance, the Zapatista or other uh, sort of decolonial ways of thinking, or your uh, your uh, thinking about music as a uh, as a tool or a vehicle mm -hmm. for resistance, mm -hmm. how does that apply specifically to metal music? Mm. Well, first of all, you know. Uh, I, I have to say, I mean, I was a huge fan of the original generation of metal, you know, the founding, the founders, the Black Sabbath, the Purple, Led Zeppelin, you know, those kind of core groups of the late 60s. Oh, yeah, I listened to that, Jimi too. Hendrix, of course, so the, the kind of yeah. classic rock origins of heavy metal. And then, you know, metal really begins to take shape. You have the new wave of British heavy metal, which begins in the mid-70s, and then you have you know, the, the uh, metal branches out into so many genres, uh, thrash and speed and death and melodic and doom and satanic and black and, and then various combinations of all of them. And then it even merges with other genres like hip hop and hardcore and punk and, and, you know, and even, even, you know, opera, I mean, and even Mongolian throat music. I mean, metal is a universal genre now that has merged with every, possible uh, genre imaginable um, but I I kind of was I metal kind of bypassed me too to be honest uh, in my youth because when I was growing up in the 80s uh, what became metal was hair metal you know all these bands like Motley Crue epitomized by Motley Crue and I absolutely hated hair metal I hated the, the whole poodle poodles. <laughs> right the poodle hair the spandex and the crappy songs I mean they were poppy I guess they were kind of cute but the, they just weren't you know if you grew up with Led Zeppelin how can you really like Motley Crue it's just like it's just like a waste of your time so um so I I and because I was living in New York which wasn't a huge center for metal really I, I became I really got into the hip-hop scene as a musician and also blues and funk and African and Middle Eastern music. So while I understood metal and I knew it and I knew there were these other genres that were much harder and much more interesting, it wasn't what I was doing. So how it really happened that I wrote several books on it is is not because I was a huge metalhead, but because I was in a bar in Morocco, in Fez, Morocco, talking to a friend at a birthday party. And he just mentioned to me that he had just come back from a, a hardcore show in Casablanca. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? There's hardcore, there's punk in Morocco. And of course he looked at me like I was a complete idiot and said, yes, why would you think there isn't punk in Morocco? But the metal scene's even better. 
And that kind of like my head just exploded and I almost dropped the like $25 glass of cognac that we were drinking that I had bought for two people. So $50 worth of cognac almost went down the drain because I just the idea and this was 2002. So less than a year after 9-11. So this is all the clash of civilizations and the you know crusade and Iraq was coming and so much hatred and violence. And then suddenly someone tells me that there's a huge metal scene in Morocco. Uh, Morocco to me is a place where rock, you know, British rock stars went in the 60s to get high and listen to traditional Sufi music like Jujuka or the Ganawa and stuff. It wasn't no. metal. But the second I heard the metal, the second I started investigating, it's like, oh my God, there's like not just Morocco, every single country from Morocco straight to Pakistan has these huge, you know, Iran, everyone has these metal scenes that are really big and really developed and amazing, much better than most of the metal I've ever heard. So <laughs> I said, yeah. wait a minute, not only is there metal, it's really good metal. It's metal I like um, because it incorporates the, the music. Mo most of it was incorporating the sounds and the instruments in some ways of the, of the cultures that I was enmeshed in. And it's really political. Um, to be a metalhead, you know, it's one thing to be a metalhead in Denmark, in Copenhagen. It's another thing to be a metalhead in Tehran, right? Yeah. Because if you walk around Tehran, and I've done this with metalheads in Tehran with your long hair and a T-shirt with like cannibal corpse or in flames or whatever, one of these crazy T-shirts, people look at, you know, first of all, if you're lucky, people just look at you weird. But a lot, you know, a lot of times the cops will beat the shit out of you. You know, you'll get arrested. They'll hey, cut whoa. your hair. They'll... You know, metalheads metal were getting arrested and threatened with execution for being apostates and Satan worshipers all over the region. So just to be a metalhead was an act of defiance. Yeah. And then the metal, and then once you think about it, the metal itself, you know, what is metal? What are the themes of metal songs? So much of it is, you know, war, oppression, corruption, all kinds of things that if you grow up in the Middle East, that's more or less actually your daily life, right? I mean, one Iraqi metalhead, you know, showed me the cover, I forget of which uh, Iron Maiden album it was, and maybe it was Killers. And, you know, when he pointed to, he said, you know, this is actually our life. Like, this is what our reality looks like for you guys. This is just a fantasy cartoon. But their rehearsal space had an RPG come through it and blow it up. You know, if they happened to have been there at that moment, they would have been vaporized. So it means something. And so the sound of metal, the harshness, as an Iranian metal had said to me, you know, you can't imagine how a music about death can affirm life. Mm. So then as a, someone who was a scholar of religion as well, I started, you know, really beginning to understand when I started looking at this, how the very, the very bodily movements, the performativity of metal, the way headbanging works, the repetitive movement, the intense rhythms, all of these things are very similar to many kinds of, of intense mystical religious practice, especially in Islam, like Sufism, for example. And, and also, you know, if you look at Jews who pray and they're kind of bobbing their heads, you know, you could see how bobbing your head and those mo rhythmic movements are common to every religion, but especially Sufism, right? Really strong mm -hmm. element. And yeah. then finally, also, I, I, I already knew this, but I really came to understand as I digged into it was the musical roots of metal, the kind of scales and modes they play, go to a certain part of the European classical tradition on the one hand, which really was rooted in, in, in or very close to 
classical Islamic kinds of uh, modes, uh, modes and scales, things like the Phrygian and Locrian and harmonic minor modes, you know, were very similar to the modes that you, that that were close, and even to the call to prayer. You know, the just the sounds. And, and on the other hand, of course, metal is rooted in the blues, and blues, we already know, comes from Africa and comes from the African slaves, most of whom, or many of whom were Muslim, who were brought over. So I suddenly understood that, you know, while I first imagined metal was foreign to the Middle East, it was a foreign import, once I got to talk to people from the region, I understood, it. and even this is African metalheads too, said, no, no, when we hear metal, we hear something familiar. That's culturally familiar, not culturally strange. So that, awesome. that was also really interesting. So it made me realize how, how we need to be so careful. And when we look at art and look at aesthetics and look at the way our own conception of what is authentic or what is local and what is foreign, they, that is not at all the way necessarily someone else might experience the same work of art, right? Totally. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's absolutely amazing. So, so the 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 tonality in that's applied in mm-hmm. metal ac- is actually aligned with, for instance, uh, Arabic, uh, Arabic, Arabic or music. Persian, or certain kinds of African. Yeah, it's all, it, yeah. there's many commonalities and maybe common origins. It, what you describe also, like it brings to mind. I, I heard an interview with uh, another. American, I think, who had researched metal, and he had been working on. Did he write a book called Lions of the North or something like that? Mm. Uh, uh, and his, like the description that you give from the Middle East or the the Muslim uh, world, um, or the world, the part of the world where Muslim is an important, where Islam is an important discourse, the, it, it sounds very different from what he was describing from white people, uh, where it's a little bit more like, well, we have these hyper-privileged kind of boring lives. We we need to spice it up with something extreme. Uh, so metal, metal is a way to do that. Yeah, that, that was... He, and, he was you know, uh, that's the brilliant thing about art, that it can yeah. serve... Completely different functions in different contexts, and both yeah. are legitimate. You know, yeah, obviously. totally. But uh, but uh, well, can I say one thing? Yeah. Let's remember the origin of metal. You mm-hmm. know, Sabbath, for example. Sabbath comes out of Birmingham. It comes out of Birmingham in the late '60s at a moment when England is beginning to deindustrialize. When the UK isn't right. Tony Iommi, the lead guitarist of Black Sabbath, said, "You know, why did our music sound like that? Because our lives were shit." They yeah. were shit. We had no future. Our lives were shit. Everything was falling apart around us. So what were we going to play? You know, we yeah. were not the posh kids from London, like the Rolling Stones playing, you know, being able to love. We we had shitty lives. And so the music reflected yeah. that. So in that sense, the the sound of metal, that that harshness and the the negative, you know, the, the minor chords and the minor modes, all of that is related to a, a political economic foundation that very soon after is going to also impact the sound and aesthetic of hip hop and also of punk, right? Totally. Also the harshness and atonality and stuff is very much a response to these changing political economic conditions, which is affecting negatively an entire generation. So yeah. that's another reason why I think, uh, you know, metal. Yeah. So it wasn't just about privilege, you know, a lot of, no, no, kids, no, no. 
totally. Yeah. And Birmingham in 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 that period, perhaps that was also a place where you know you'll get beaten by skinheads with an iron of pipe course. or something right. like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. so uh, yeah, totally. But um, how, how it seems to me that there's something about metal, particularly in this way that metal is moving around the world today and being immersed in in stuff like indigenous cultures or being mm. applied in is perhaps a better word or, or taken in by, yeah, Mongolians or Maori or mm. Uh, mm. or Mexicans and so on. Um, but there's something about it that has, I don't know, it has... It, it, and it might not it might not be something that's inherent to metal but it has this there is this culture of connecting it towards cultural roots somehow mm-hmm. and obviously in the nordic space that's something that you see all over the place this huge tendency which i think goes yeah. all the way back to the early norwegian black metal and Absolutely. so on that that there was this kind of ah oh, there's a past that needs to be recovered somehow well that happens also in 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 middle eastern metal you have a lot of bands who kind of go pre-islamic okay or pagan um so in iran especially because of the very strong zoroastrian past in iran so you see uh one of my favorite um bands is a iranian band artemis um amazing guitar player and um they they don't necessarily exist anymore right now but they 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 were really around in the mid 2000s mid to late 2000s and you know they and other bands were kind of trying to rehabilitate the zoroastrian or the mythical past the same way in in scandinavia they were doing very similar thing and and i think you see that everywhere african metal bands like archon out of togo and um and uh yeah the the mongolian thing i think it's the combination on the one hand metal is extremely modern and harsh and industrial and so it takes it out of whatever your normative cultural context is. And on the other hand, then you have your local traditional music. So when you put them together, you're kind of bypassing the hegemonic normative, you know, um, culture for two extremes, right? The roots and the most globalized, you know, foreign potentially sound uh, that you can imagine. When you put them together, you kind of box out the culture, you know, the dominant culture that you feel alienated from or you feel doesn't speak to you. So I think that's one reason why metal is so amenable to that. And of course, hip hop did the very similar thing, right? Hip hop, you know, was, yeah. um, goes to the Middle East or Africa or any culture that has a strong oral tradition of poetry, like mm. Iran or the Arab world or, or now in Pakistan or others. And it takes off because it, it's so easy to adapt it. Hip hop. I think hip hop started in he he in Scandinavia, or at least in Denmark. I know it started. I think as early as the the mid nineteen eighties. Oh sure. Was like Absolutely. I think Run DMC were probably yeah. like so quickly it, it really and people were actually rapping in our own language. Yeah. We have an almost legendary rapper from the mid yeah. mid uh, um, mid eighties. Yeah. Cool. No, I think it's, that's incredibly fascinating, and th- and that has a uh, that has a a um, this sort of search for cultural roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I saw the uh, this Mon- very famous Mongolian uh, yeah. metal band where, yeah. and man, they're so powerful. They're yeah. so powerful to look at these yeah. guys. 
uh, yeah. and and there's some sort of uh, is there is there a counter modernity in this somehow? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. It's a way yeah. of it's a way of asserting modernity, but that's outside that can't easily be captured yeah. by capitalist forces by the market by the you know but it's also marketable like why you know those the mongolian those mongolian throat metal guys they're making a good living they wouldn't be making that living and touring all over the world if they weren't doing metal and doing those videos of you know with brutal mongolian throat metal over these incredible vistas you know that now they're playing probably vakken and you know whatever roskilder whatever festivals yeah. So if they were just the Mongolian throat singers, no one would know who they are, right? So I mean, yeah. there's also the it's also the fact that once you start doing metal uh, rather than just your own traditional music, suddenly you can wind up in Roskilde, you know, or totally, Bach totally. or, or or Hellfest or something. Yeah. So there is that, and if you're a musician, that's of course what you want. But it also is fun. It's fun to play with things. It, it really comes back to the kind of tricksternish or dada painting you know it's it's very related to also just using art to play with play with your own identities and subvert yeah. things and piss people off and and be funny yeah. you know uh, there's I think a space for play there somehow yeah well there's you know the great scandinavian swedish metal band that we talked about before avatar um that i i know them a bit a and avatar? wonderful guy avatar yeah Okay. And uh the lead singer Johannes Sekerstrom, they're out of Stockholm. You know, they're um You're sure you're not talking about Amon Amarth? Uh-uh. No, Avatar. Um, Avatar, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. They're amazing. Um, because they the way they have very much like this kind of tricksterous kind of thing. It's like playing with the ideas of kind of death metal but subverting them at the same time, you know, lots of kind of costumes, kind of the way Alice Cooper did it and kind of the way Sabbath itself, you know, they thought the whole thing with occult and all of that stuff was just fun. You know, they, they were just doing that to make to, because they thought it was fun, like, like, and like grade, you know, grade B horror movies were fun, even though they were bad, they were fun to watch. And in a similar way, there's this element of metal from the very beginning that is theatrical and fun. And it's subversive in the fact that it's fun because people take it so seriously and they start crusades against it. But for the people doing it, they're just, you know, they're just taking the piss out of everything and having a good time. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's, um, there's some, I think there's some very serious cultural resilience uh, going on. I lived mm. in Norway in the mid nineties. Mm. Uh, that was far north of Norway, but I'm, oh, wow. I'm telling you, bro, that the, like the the uh, the uh, the events surrounding um, uh, the Borsum, the, of the church, and everything, yeah, and all that stuff. Yeah. That yeah. was. In, it had an incredible yeah. cultural impact yeah, because course. it was a, a culture where that, or as I remember it, that was in many ways very like prudish and very yeah, like of Christianity was yeah. such a dominating sort of cultural mm. that was like lying on top of people. And, yeah. and uh, um, I actually asked uh, the Norwegian uh, musician Ina Selvik once about what 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 he what he thought about that whole thing and he said 
well, I mean, obviously, you know, nobody would sympathize with people murdering each other or burning cultural heritage and these kind of things. But he also said, but it did something important. There was some sort of cultural need to ah, to sort of make right. that that uh, that right. base. Well, I I, think, he, he didn't refer to the violence yeah. there, but, but no. Uh, but I think Norway is different. Also, I think in those days, still before all the money really kicked in from the North Sea oil, yeah. Norway was very different. Sweden and Denmark were much wealthier. Still, they were much mm. more integrated into Europe, into the global economy, and everything. And I think Norway hadn't, you know, now Norway is the richest country in the world, and it's so different. And you go there, and it's so modern. But, you know, you think about Norway where those guys grew up in the 70s and 80s. It was and you're in the north of Norway where there's maybe mm. four people in the whole place, you know, and it's so dark most of the time. And it's a very, you know, you can see how that place would produce some pretty intense metal yeah. because it's, yeah. it's metal. I mean, just living there is is hard. And so yeah. the music yeah. would be hard. And yet there's such a powerful cultural tradition and uh, powerful religious cultural tradition, the Vikings and, you know, the symbolism of all that and the global symbolism of the Vikings. And, you know, mm -hmm. uh, so I, you can I, I, I see how and why that would be, uh, you know, maybe people don't don't remember what Norway was several yeah. decades ago. It was such yeah. a different country than it is now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I think part of this is, is also that, like particularly when we're talking about the Nordic space lab, that uh, that there is this, and this is partly due to our recent uh, cultural history in the 19th century, national romanticism, mm. and all these things. But there is that sort of a feeling of 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 a cultural past that 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 there is an attraction to or an identification with somehow. Mm. Yeah. I think what happened within the last like about the time that I was in Norway in the mid nineties, at that point, there was these kind of heathen ish folk, folk music mm -hmm. that started to come out. There was a group called Hedning mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. Sweden and so mm -hmm. on. But then what happened from, particularly from the, this metal milieu was that this guy that I mentioned before, Einar Selvik, he came mm -hmm. out of that milieu, but he basically started like with a, on a very high level, very high analytical level, high musical level, but he started sort of immersing yeah. in like uh, spirituality and meditating on runes in the mountains and these kind of things. So his, and I perceive that as epistemologically decolonizing in a sense, and it it kind of it kind of flowed out of metal really, um, and not only him. There are also other people who are kind of. Yeah. Similar. Uh, well, metal is inherently decolonial in many ways. It can also be inherently fascist, so uh, as many art forms. But um, we tend to think more of of metal as as a force for you know negativity because of mm. the genre. But in fact, it often isn't. And Latin America, there's you know there's been a lot of work done by metal scholars on decolonial metal in Latin America and how metal as an outsider music was used to critique you know both by people who were you know either mixed or mestizo or euro latin americans but even also indigenous latin americans to critique the dominant society in all these kind of regimes which were either authoritarian or extremely neoliberal in a very 
a violent way for for marginalized peoples. So metal has a long tradition of being decolonial, even though to some people, if they see it only as some cultural force that comes from the outside, it would seem to be colonial. But it, I mean, that just shows, I think it reminds us how people can take any art form like hip hop mm. and, and uh, that comes from abroad uh, and and use it very quickly, adopt it or adapt and adapt it for their own purposes. So mm. I, I think you're absolutely right that metal in the Scandinavian context would be could very easily, especially th those parts of Scandinavia up north. Um, considered decolonial. And let's remember, you know, decolonization is often a very violent process. Mm. So part of that decolonization that metal would be used at could be the kind of violence you're talking about, right? So rather mm. than seeing that as atavistic or or insane or um, what would be the, the right word, delinquent, you know, or just somehow um, reflecting of some kind of mental illness or or um, or delinquency or what have you. It's actually in the same way that um, when people resist colonial forces, they might use violence against who they, the people they believe are colonizing them. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. it's right, but it doesn't mean you can say it's atavistic or, you know, a sign of of you know not being critical or something it can actually be that too even if it's mm. not pleasant or even morally justifiable yeah and i think actually that these guys would have probably formulated it like that they would probably sure. have said yeah well uh, we are burning these churches because churches burned our own temples and exactly. years ago or something like right. so so in their narration it would certainly be like that well the imposition but, of christianity in scandinavia was not a non-violent process no totally definitely not, not particularly not in norway by the way no, no. um it, it's described in the in the king sagas and that was very, very violent indeed yeah. um but th there's a, there's a thing that that um you touch then with relation to perhaps fascism and so on uh where i kind of thinking that nationalisms, nationalist ideologies obviously often become part of decolonizing processes. So if you have a, I don't know, a Maori uh, nationalism in Aotearoa, New Zealand, or an Inuit mm. nationalism, or mm -hmm. uh, like yeah, an yeah, identitarian. Sure, sure, sure. And so the, like, it would seem to me that if there is this component of nationalism that often sort of moves in metal spaces, then perhaps that would be expressed or that would be that would become decolonial if it's done by Maori, but it would become more fascist if it's done by contemporary white Swedish people. Well, it has is, the potential to do that. Metal is a vector for an incredible amount of aesthetic power. Yeah. Uh, unlike, um, you know, pop music, for example, uh, metal is a form of music that carries incredible power through it aesthetically. Yeah. So that power, therefore, it's going to be adopted. So is hip hop for that matter. So is hardcore, right? All yeah. all forms of extreme youth music are powerful and and are popular because of the you know because they are extreme and they are vessels to for catharsis and community and critique together right the three c's i guess you could say and um and that means they're going to be taken up by all kinds of people you know uh, there's no kind of music you can have 
you know, you can have fascist folk music, you could have fascist classical music, you could have fascist jazz even, I suppose. Um, but yeah, so it's the genre, you know, art art is always amenable to all kinds of politics, but especially the power of metal means the anger behind national socialism and, and fascism would be, you know, very easily uh, co-opted into metal and, and co-opt the scenes, just like hardcore, you were talking about the skinheads and, you know, the violent skinheads, just like there were anti-racist skinheads who would fight the racist skinheads. Uh, mm -hmm. because the music could be used for both. But the one thing they all shared was a complete distaste for and dislike of the hegemonic kind of normative system. So yeah. that, that's what brings them together. And sometimes the shift uh, between these positions can be surprisingly small. Uh, surprisingly small, sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's also, I mean, a part of this power and the aesthetic, isn't it also... There's something about it being sexy, being super sexy somehow. Again, I, I saw the Mongolian, uh, yeah. the Mongolian well, band. Yeah. Uh, well, you could say the same thing. There's a, an African, the Togolese band I mentioned, Archon. You know, they're you know, the same thing. I mean, yes, there is. It's very libidinal. Libidinal. It's very erotic. It's very, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, seductive. Um, you know, there's so much power. And of course, most of the people doing it are young. And, and you know, so yeah, there's an incredible amount of, of, of erotic energy in metal, to be sure. Yeah. Uh, and that, and that plays into it as well. Uh, I mean, yeah. and, and again, that's the same in hip hop, it was the same in blues, mm -hmm. same in jazz, you know, any kind of powerful music is going to be inherently libidinal, libidinal, yeah. and, and carry that kind of energy that that transfers to listeners or to the audience which is why the audience likes it yeah yeah totally mm. totally so if we have a space that has that is characterized by counterculture perhaps counter modernity there are it is it is ripe to be applied in cultural resistance it's mm -hmm. uh and there is uh there's aesthetic power erotic expression in it you know uh then uh you know what like we're talking about some of the cultural uh positions that are flowing out of of uh of this so but what should we like what should we want for this how should we what should we encourage people to do like let me give you an example <laughs> In Norway, there's a, a metal festival that is sort of playing on the whole Viking slash metal mm. thing. And part of what they have been doing is they actually took an ancient sacred site, which is located mm. there. Now, this sacred site was, you could say, appropriated or labeled during the Second World War by Nazis. What these people are doing now is they're saying, okay, well, we have a metal festival here. And what's going on here is totally positive. And if you're wearing a mm. Nazi T-shirt, somebody's going to basically throw you out of the festival. Mm. This is anti-racist. Right. And I, I, was, I think it's such a beautiful example because they're just using it to do something. They don't have to make a lot of right. pre uh, sermons. That's a, that's a good thing. Yeah, I see what you're so, saying. I could think in America in the 80s when, when the conservatives were trying to 
censor metal and hip hop because of their explicit lyrics and you know sex and all the things in the music. It's mostly hair metal they were talking about. They they couldn't even listen to death metal or any of the more extreme metal. But you know none other than you know D. Snyder from Twisted Sister. You know which I don't even know if they're really metal. They were again a kind of tricksterish kind of you know carnivalesque kind of band, right? Um, cross dressing in a way and you know and all kinds of fun stuff. That was also quite weird for mainstream America, but you know, D. Snyder suddenly comes in and does congressional testimony that destroys, you know, in one one, you know, him. I think it was him and Frank Zappa together just simply destroyed the entire argument by the conservatives about the need to protect American values and protect American youth from the horrors and the dangers of, you know, satanic, you know, wor Satan worshiping metal stars, you know, and, and metal music. So they, they used their position as musicians uh, doing music that was considered extreme. And then they subverted that in, in, a, in the arena of public opinion through appearing to testify before Congress. And I think in the same way that said, you know, we, we're going to take on your conservatism, which is what the music's about. But we can also do it in, a, in, in, in Congress. We don't just have to do it on a record. And it just made them look really stupid. And <laughs> once they did that, that was the end of those attempts to kind of censor metal or, or, or you know, defame it or uh, characterize it as a threat. You know, no one takes that seriously anymore. Or maybe <laughs> a few conservatives wouldn't. Well, now then there became Christian metal. You know, once they couldn't get rid of metal, they figured, well, maybe we can co-opt it. Yeah, yeah. Anyone who's, anyone who's heard Christian metal knows how that turned out, though. Not so well. Okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think right. I mean, again, it, it because of its highly transversal, subversive character that really breaks through um, dominant you know, existing structures and mores, it opens up the space for so many other possibilities. Mm. And, and that's why I think the genre is still so important to study and so useful mm. and also so useful to play. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think of just one of the great artists, um, not an artist, generally a keyboard player. Um, oh gosh, his first name, it's not, I think it's, well, it's, it's it's Rick Wakeman, the keyboard player from Yes. His son is Harry Wakeman. I can't remember. Um, uh, who, who was an amazing keyboard player himself mm. who played keyboard for Black Sabbath and, and Ozzy Osbourne. But he also, on his own, uh, re-records re Sabbath tunes as jazz tunes in a project called Jazz Sabbath. <laughs> and, you know, absolutely incredible. He takes these, you know, riffs that are the er metal riffs of uh, imaginable the most purely metal riffs and then suddenly he turns them into kind of miles davis -y, you know late 60s electric miles davis beginnings of jazz fusion post bebop epics so you know it just opens itself up to being yeah. played with by so in so many ways and that's what makes it so fun yeah yeah awesome I have one more question. I can see that sure. it's laid over there and you're a bit tired. <laughs> but uh, uh, the um, when you are uh, talking about the the censorship on metal and the conservative reactions and 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 will to basically control this carnivalesque space, can I ask how does 
that play out today in the spaces where, for instance, uh, identity politics and uh, uh, discourses about uh, sexual inclusion uh, yeah. and these sort of things are producing uh, sometimes rather specific standards for how to express oneself that mm. like <clears throat> you like like we all know it like oftentimes you know you you stop yourself and say okay am i naming this in the right way or can mm. i get in trouble mm. for saying the wrong thing here because i because i i don't have you know the the the, the cultural standards in place about uh and that that particular cultural part of our time which obviously is, is, is motivated by generating kindness and and uh, and, uh, and mm. respect between people couldn't that actually go into conflict with this extremely transgressive sort of dedication to other and ugliness mm. and ag aggression in 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 the metal expression do you see that play out well i think the main way it plays out is just in the role of of women in metal you know there's always been women in metal yeah. There's always been female metal musicians, although a minority, but also even in the Muslim world and elsewhere um, in Indonesia, even there's an amazing mm. all-female hijab wearing metal group that's taken the world by storm, basic voice of basic approach. Um, but I, I think I think metal has always had space because it's inherently subversive. There's been a general tendency to allow people to fly the freak flag and you know within yeah. because there's so many subgenres of metal there's always room for another one and so i think you can be you i think there's an inherent tendency among people you know, at least artists in the scene to welcome transgressivity against the dominant sort of patriarchal mindset but on the other hand uh, metal is also very macho and masculinist uh, and, and itself sexualizing and patriarchal too, as it comes out of rock and roll and the blues and things that are inherently that as well. So I think there's a tension there. Um, and um, I, I think less so for the musicians who are much more open-minded. I've met very few metal, real metal musicians who weren't incredibly open-minded in every possible way, politically, aesthetically, mm. uh, to other kinds of music, to other kinds of lifestyles and, and identities. However, you know, the fans are a different story. Obviously, fans, there's not always a direct correspondence between fans and artists in any genre. So I think that's really the difference. But I, I do think that, you know, if you get into the real the real hardcore, the extreme metal scenes, they're, you know, forgetting about the kind of national socialist black metal or something, or just that kind of metal, which is really based on demonization and hatred of others. But once you're talking about just the genres, the extreme genres, they are, they can be, you know, very open in ways that you wouldn't see in traditional pop or hip hop or others where there's, you know, I think that's part of the transgressivity of metal but of course i think you know you can always find people who are transphobic or anti-gay or whatever anti-immigrant mm -hmm. but i found that at least as a genre it's very open to much more of that kind of more progressive attitude because it it emerges as a distinct and very marginalized subculture those are its roots yeah right so that's why i think there's space for that yeah. there yeah so it's inherently is it 
is inherently pluralistic because it grows from margins and counterpositions to perhaps knowledge. That's uh, my experience. That's my experience, you know, meeting metalheads and metal artists, you know, on five continents. But of course, I'm sure people could be listening to this who say, what are you talking about? Most of the metalheads I know are completely homophobic or transphobic or right wing. Who knows? Of course. But at least the artists I've known are, you know, like most artists, much more open to that. And I think the scenes, because of how many splinters there are in within metal, so many combinations, it's much more open to what might still be considered culturally transgressive identities, yeah. normatively transgressive identities. Cool. Great. Yeah. Thank you very much for taking the no, time well, it was to such a pleasure uh, to be here. Sorry to... it took a while, but I'm glad we could finally do it. <laughs> yeah, we had to find a little bit to find a time, yeah. but uh, but it was super cool, yes. super cool to meet you and uh, well, thank and you. to uh, thanks for sharing. Cool. Yeah, thank See you. See you around.